ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Hey, Angus Furley here. You've got me in the Country Hour chair today and for a couple of days next week before Warwick gets back. On today's show, China has lifted its ban on Australian hay. So what's that going to mean for farmers and the hay exporters? Also, Victoria's wild dog and dingo control program has been extended for a year, but is that only a delay to the inevitable? And you'll also hear from livestock analyst Simon Quilty, who's tipping cattle and lamb prices could bottom out by November. You can get in touch on the text line 0467 842 722. Before we get to those stories, though, let's start with rural news with Emma Field. G'day, Angus. Let's start rural news in China, where new reports show pig numbers in the country have returned to pre-African swine fever levels. An outbreak of the highly contagious disease in 2018 saw millions of pigs die and the Chinese pork industry decimated. Meat and Livestock Australia's global supply analyst, Tim Jackson, says imports into China spiked in the wake of the swine fever outbreak. Over the period where African swine um, fever was really affecting Chinese production. There were lots of changes in import markets and and consumption in China and all of that. So we'll never know what their consumption landscape would have looked like without it. But we do know when ASF came into China, the effect was an immediate, substantial and long-lasting decline in the hog herd and a corresponding decline in production, which has persisted for several years. And even now, their production is only getting back close to levels that it was pre-ASF, which means that there were several years where consumption was really down, and particularly in 2019, that expressed itself through really, really substantial increases in imports. Now, many of you would have heard of the potential of asparagosis in reducing methane emissions in livestock, but there's some more competition on the block. A feed additive called Bovar has spent a decade being researched and developed overseas by global science giant DSM. But it's now about to become commercially available. As Laura Webster reports, Australian trials using the additives have seen interesting results. Results overseas are said to have shown a quarter teaspoon per cow per day, on average, reduces methane emissions from dairy cattle by 30% and up to 45% for beef cattle. For the first time, the additive has been trialled in feedlots here in Australia. University of New England Associate Professor of Livestock Production, Fran Cowley, says the numbers have far exceeded those figures. It's actually the greatest suppression of methane that had been observed anywhere in the world with this product before. So um, overall, in the finisher diet, we were getting 90% inhibition of methane um, by including just a couple of teaspoons of Bovair 10 in the in the ration each day. Um, and that went up to 99% at times. So a, a really outstanding result and has it's a massive step towards producing carbon-neutral beef. While 3% of Australians live and work remotely, they often don't have access to equitable health care. Gillian Fennell is a pastoralist in South Australia's far north, 
close to the Northern Territory border and was a panellist at this week's Remote Australian Matters conference. She says they came up with some practical solutions to help remote Australians get better health care. You know, there's not a lot of us out here. There's probably 3% of the Australian population live in remote Australia. And we don't have equitable access to basic primary healthcare services. So that's what we're trying to do. The five key points that we're going, that RAM is going to work on moving forward, community involvement and leadership, universal health coverage, so defining what that looks like and, and what is included in that, and those sorts of basic things like continuity of care, seeing the same healthcare provider on a regular basis, remote area workforce, uh, especially in the healthcare, place-based community health models, determining models that work for those individual communities and of course funding and resourcing you know I know a lot of people in Canberra will be getting very nervous when you start talking about funding and resourcing but it might not actually mean more money it might just mean better utilizing the money that's already allocated and giving us the freedom and the opportunity to use that funding to work on solutions for our community. And finally are you a fan of onions Angus? While inflation has pushed up the cost of most fruit and vegetable items, apparently the price of onions has remained stable at around $2 a kilo. But it turns out they're also very good for us, as South Australian Riverland dietitian Felicity Morell explains. Onions contain um, a, a substance called fructans, which is a type of carbohydrate that our bodies don't digest very well, um, but the bacteria in our large intestine do. So one of the biggest benefits of onions for our, for our is for our gut health um, because they're essentially providing food for our gut bacteria, which is really nourishing our gut microbiome, which has loads of links to different parts of our health, like our immunity, like um, reducing risk of allergies. Um, the list goes on. We're just learning more and more about gut health in general, and onions are one of those foods that um, are really great for our gut health. There you go, Angus. You should definitely be adding some onions to your grand final Barbie tomorrow. And that wraps up Rural News. Thanks, Emma. Emma Field there with Rural News. And yes, big fan of onions. Uh, always try and grow, grow enough for my needs in the veggie garden, saving myself that, that princely sum of $2 a kilo. Remember, you can text in to the country hour if you've got your phone handy today. 0467 842 is the text line. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Australia's hay exporters are welcoming news the hay trade with China is set to get back to business after two years of being locked out of the market. Since early 2021, about 25 Australian businesses exporting hay to China have been waiting to have their trade permits renewed. And that breakthrough finally occurred yesterday. Munro Patchett is the chief executive of Gilmac, Australia's largest hay exporter. He says getting the hay trade back is great news for the industry. From the farmers in Australia to farmers in China and the exporters, it's, it's, it's quite good news. It just means it's another large uh, outlet for hay from Australia. There's really only Japan, Taiwan and South Korea. Uh, and now with China back, it's, uh, it's very positive for the industry. Now, you are one of the 25 or so companies that didn't have your export permit renewed with China a couple of years ago. What impact did it have on your business? Uh, we had to reduce the amount of hay we contracted with farmers, which we did at an early time, so the hay wasn't grown. We then had to uh, work harder in the existing markets and uh, do our best to sell additional tonnes in, in the uh, current markets, compete with 
uh, our competitors in Australia and, and also uh, take on the US people and find some new markets, which um, we've done all of those things um, quite successfully. Which markets did you find? Uh, we've got a little bit of business into Indonesia. Some of our competitors uh, have got into Vietnam in a reasonable size way and there's um, a current project funded in part by the Australian government to look at other uh, countries uh, to try and expand uh, exports from Australia as well. Can you give us an idea, a sense of what this cost you, though, when China didn't renew those permits? Uh, because of the time of year, the seeding was just about to start, so we are able to convince farmers to, to not grow as much hay. So there wasn't a huge oversupply and a huge um, you know, dumping of prices, which we are all very concerned about at the time. So in actual fact, the industry managed it fairly well, fairly responsibly. Prices held up and... Uh, People uh, just got on with it, and since then there's been sort of dry years, and last year was a very wet year in eastern Australia, so there's less hay. So uh, overall, it hasn't had a massive impact on the hay, hay export industry. And all licences have been renewed, is that right? No, a few haven't. I think for some technical reasons, maybe some plants didn't have quite the right procedures and equipment to suit, but the Department of Agriculture in Australia will work with those um, plants to get them uh, licensed if they want to be going forward. But yours is renewed. You're back to business. Yes, most of our sites have been renewed. That's right. Yeah. Why now? Why has China renewed these permits now? Um, I don't really know. You'd have to have to ask them. But uh, I mean, the the the, um, the COVID shutdown had, would have had a massive impact in China, and I guess uh, renewing hay export license wasn't a priority. And I suppose I've uh, uh, found time to get around to doing it, and so uh, we're back in there. The Department of Agriculture have been lobbying right the way through. And, particularly uh, Ray Olson in charge there. has been a great lobbyist for the Haynes trying to get back in there. So I think uh, over time it's just um, come to pass that uh, we're back in. Did you realise the decision was imminent? No, we, we applied for the – we did the paperwork about two or three months ago and we didn't hear anything uh, back about that. So, um, no, it's a bit of a surprise. Late yesterday, the Australian government said the trading relationship had been repaired and trade was expected to resume. When does that actually happen? Uh, my understanding is the uh, market for hay is now open uh, from, from this point, but our customers or the customers have to apply for import licences, which will take a few weeks. So I imagine you'll see uh, new, new shipments uh, leaving Australia uh, for China in the next uh, few weeks. So Munro, what are your expectations about exports of hay to China this year going on you know, previous years? And what are your expectations this time round? I think it depends very much on the supply. Uh, before China stopped, they were taking about 400,000 tonnes a year, which was second to Japan, only just second. Uh, I imagine that'll, uh, that'll, that'll kick off again at a fairly rapid rate of knots, provided the hay is better to support it. They've also started growing a lot of their own domestic hay. So we'll just have to wait and see. It's a bit of a melting pot. Ask me in a year's time and I'll have an accurate answer for you. Now, Munro, when China removed the tariff on Australian barley, the price of barley jumped. So are you expecting the same for oats going to hay? Uh, I would say it will uh, put some upward pressure on, on the prices. I mean, at the moment, the um, renminbi and the uh, Korean won and Japanese yen are at very weak levels against the US dollar. So there's a limit to how, how high things can go. But I think there's some scope there for it to go up a little bit. We put our pricing out a few weeks ago and, uh, and uh, it was about 15% higher than this time last year. And we'll be looking to announce our first, um, first season top up in the, in the coming days. Well, our uh, opening price was 210 to 300 in that range, and we'll be stepping that up from, from next week uh, a little bit higher. Um, and I think that um, other exporters will probably be in a similar area. Uh, we'll still wait and see what everyone decides to do, what the feedback from the market is. Are you tentative at all about the first shipment after, you know, being shut out for basically a couple of years? 
Not really, because uh, three companies have been exporting to China right the way through. Their licenses weren't um, hadn't expired. They don't run out till later this year, and they were shipping without any problems. So I don't I don't think there's going to be uh, any issues. But we won't be the first to ship back in there. I'm sure some of the competitors will get in there before we do. That was Munro Patchett, the chief executive of Hay Exporter Gilmax, speaking with Belinda Varaschetti. Good timing too, isn't it? I suppose getting the China market back at the same time as haymaking's kicking off and. For the most part, I think most people have had close to perfect hay-making weather. It'd be good to hear from you about that China news, about how your hay program's going. You can text in 0467 842722. Let's go to the livestock sector now because a leading analyst says he believes cattle and lamb prices will bottom out in November, but they do still have a way to fall before then. Simon Quilty from Global Agri-Trends has used market trends from past periods of depressed pricing to come up with his forecast. He says those trends strongly signal the bottom of the market isn't far away. It looks like to me that November is probably the likely period or month which we're likely to see for both lamb and beef or cattle um, the bottom of the market. And we've kind of drawn that conclusion based on four previous cattle cycles and The trend is for, in the last two cycles in particular, is to destock early. And I think that's very much what we've seen this time as well. Okay, so November not far away. That that would be welcome news for people. But is it sort of counterintuitive to think that prices would bottom out before we potentially get uh, drier and and droughtier? And that's a, a good question, Angus. In actual fact, what we saw in the previous two cattle cycles and best described or or displayed in 2018 and 19 where it actually that the ecu hit its low in march of 2019 and it got progressively drier through that entire year Um, so the extreme dryness happened after the market bottomed history tells us that Price lows don't necessarily go with the dryness. In actual fact, people, farmers are preempting the dry and moving early. And I think that's what we've seen in the last you know, 12 to um, 12 months or so. And has that perhaps happened in, in well, looking at New South Wales, has that happened this time around to a greater extent and earlier than in the past because of the, the fresh memories of the last New South Wales drought? I think that's part of it for sure. The market psychology is definitely one of um, you know being proactive, but I think there's a couple of other key drivers as well that have influenced their decision making. One is high feed costs at the moment, Angus, and the thought of actually having to carry animals through another drought and pay you know enormous amounts of money for feed in what is a very subdued, you know, depressed market is a turn-off. Okay, so both beef and lamb prices to to, to bottom out in November in your view, but how about uh, mutton prices? Will that have a more extended period of, of depressed pricing? I think that will be more challenging as the market looks to continue to liquidate. And so I think there's more room to be um, had in that liquidation process as you know, the expectation is that things will get drier next year. And then uh, you, you say in your report that, uh, well, I suppose the more ewes that are killed, the better it is for, for land pricing? 
I think so, and and I think you know my expectation is that in two thousand and twenty four, lamb slaughterings will be down by about twelve percent, and as those lamb numbers start to fall away next year, prices will improve. Okay, so given that, and uh, I suppose weather conditions dependent, will there be opportunities in in twenty twenty four? I think so, Angus. Truly, there will be because. At some point, people who have destocked will need to restock, and I think that's um, definitely for many an opportunity that they cannot ignore, particularly as prices are low. Once rain comes, and the expectation is that hopefully this is a 12-month El Nino, so by the final quarter of next year, um, the expectation is by the experts of potential rain. And for once that rain comes and you know, we start to get a rebuild happening, cow prices in particular, females, become very expensive in a short period of time. And yes, talking about the long-range outlook, you do reference in your report, or you, you do say that you're relying on a, 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 the El Nino only running till October next year, and that's based on some long-range forecasting, I think, by an American, well-known American forecaster. It's Dr. Art Douglas, that's correct. And at Global Agritrends, we've used Art now for four or five years, and he, he is very good. Um, so our, you know, his strong opinion is that this will be, um, you might say, short and sharp, 12 months, um, but it will be, um, in his words, a, a rigorous um, El Nino. So the expectation is that it will be dry, um, and it will see some, you know, extremes in terms of temperatures. And ultimately, Simon, at the end of the day, I, I know you. I suppose you you stand by what you forecast, but it is only a forecast, and and I suppose everyone needs to make their own uh, individual, independent business decisions. They do, Angus, and I think that's a really important point to reiterate. Is you know, seek other advice, of course, because you need a balanced approach when you know making these decisions. Simon, we've still got uh, two or three months to to run before you're predicted uh, bottoming out of the market. So will we see prices continue to slide in that time? I think we will, Angus. My expectation is, based on history and the movements we've seen in the past, is probably something like another 10 to 14% downside within the cattle sector. And of course, this is just my best guesstimate. But the monthly average on the ECI today is 420. My expectation for November, the monthly average to be at 360. And Angus, that will be the low, I believe, not just for now, but for many years to come as we move into higher markets in 25, 26 and 2027. That was Simon Quilty, Livestock Analyst at Global Agri Trends with, well, I suppose definitely short-term short-term pain still for forecasting all livestock markets have, are going to continue to slide but only until november in terms of beef and lamb so predicts simon quilty different story for mutton though it sounds like that might not be light at the end of the tunnel at the moment for the mutton job and on the text line chris asks a question that uh we do get asked quite a lot i suppose chris says angus when do we see the meat prices bottom out in the supermarkets good question chris i know there are lots of gripes about uh, a perceived lack of discounting of meat uh, 
prices have come down at supermarkets. They've come down too at the local butcher shops. I wonder what uh, whether people are seeing a greater discount at the butcher shop as compared to the supermarket. You can text in like Chris says, 0467 842 722. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Farmers have welcomed a 12-month extension of Victoria's wild dog control program, but they say there's been a lack of consultation from the state government over the future of the program. Currently, wild dogs and dingoes can be controlled on Crown land within a three-kilometre buffer of farmland, but that provision was set to expire this Sunday. Michael McCormack is a Talangata Valley farmer and former chair of the National Wild Dog Management Advisory Group. He says the extension is a good short-term result for farmers. Uh, well, we welcome the extension for 12 months and the extension of the funding to uh, do that uh, from the Environment Department. We were uh, told that, uh, first, as you said, uh, 1st of October was going to be the end of the thing with the review. So we welcome this extension for 12 months, but uh, we're a little bit disappointed that uh, government... Uh, in their study to do the extension, spent time and and said that they were going to have consultation with landholders and uh, all other stakeholders in this space. To me, uh, there's been quite a... This day, there's been a lack of that uh, consultation, so we're looking forward to being involved in in this discussion. Are you aware uh, of what number of farmers and landholders have been consulted in the lead-up to this decision? Not at all, but we certainly, we've been reasonably vocal in this space and uh, haven't heard anything from government at all. Agriculture Victoria says the dingo has an important role as a top-order predator in the natural environment and it's both culturally important to First Nations peoples and valued as an iconic Australian species. Is there a way to find a middle ground here in what is essentially a human-wildlife conflict? Well, I don't know that we necessarily made it middle ground because we agree with that statement really uh we're talking about population numbers of these wild dogs and we're really looking forward to this study from government to assert uh actual numbers of those dogs um we are are pushing and lobbying for the extension and the extension which we've got for 12 months for the three kilometer buffer zone now, that three-kilometre three buffer zone is a very important space for our wild dog controllers, not exterminators, they are controllers, uh, to work in for errant dogs that are coming into uh, private land from the, from the public lands uh, that are predating on our livestock. But the, the picture is much larger than that. The, as far as we're concerned, the number of those dogs is just, far too high and the impacts they're having on our wildlife uh, and so forth in our public land and our, and our, and our private land, of course, um, is horrendous. Do we're, you have a picture of, of the number of what you say are wild dogs? No, no, because uh, the, the, we've been promised for years that they were going to do a study into trying to work out uh, how many wild dogs are out there and... Uh, it's only, you know, summations and guesses and so forth. So a bit more clarity around that would be very good so we, we could make a more informed decision. Uh, 
when we have this, since the last 10 years, we've had this uh, wild lock buffer, this three-kilometre buffer that we, we can uh, have our controllers work again, we are a little bit worried that we are forming uh, what they call a sink uh, in that space where, where that is where we uh, take out dog numbers, certainly not uh, taking them all out, but just controlling wild dog numbers in those spaces. And we have started to see uh, little remnants of, of wildlife coming back uh, just in our area, there is a little red drum wallaby that uh, has been seen for some time and there's just a few of them starting to poke up again, which is really exciting. Uh, you know, public must understand, yes, we, we look after our, wildlife, our livestock and we're worried about those, but we, we want to see our wildlife back in our public lands and our private lands as well. Michael, just quickly, the Victorian government says they will continue to consult and assess over the next 12 months. What's your message to them? Well, we, we are, you know, waiting with bated breath to, uh, to do that and we really look forward to that, uh, to, have, to be able to uh, speak to government and, and about our concerns and, and what we think should be happening going forward. Uh, you know, from a national point of view, uh, Victoria is seen as the model for wild dog control. That was Talangata Valley farmer and former chair of the National Wild Dog Management Advisory Group, Michael McCormack, speaking to Fiona Broom. And we were told that state government ministers weren't available for interview today on this subject, but in a statement, a spokesperson for the Department of Environment said, following emerging research, the current unprotection order will be extended for 12 months to allow for a comprehensive assessment of the dingo population across Victoria to inform appropriate protections moving forward. On the text line, well, we'll get to headlines shortly, but on the text line, Buzz asks, when you're talking to the Bureau, can you ask how much rain for the northwest of the Mallee? Crops are looking okay, but 10 mils would make a massive difference. Yeah, all eyes on that forecast, sort of mid to oh, around mid next week. Certainly we'll ask the Bureau when we get them on shortly, but before that, we better get to news headlines with Rochelle Kirkham. Good afternoon, Angus. An advice message has been issued for a pine forest fire at Enfield, south of Ballarat, that is not yet under control. The fire is spreading along the roadside from Mount Mercer Deril Road in a southerly direction towards Rokewood Shelford Road. The CFA says the fire is one kilometre long and 200 metres wide, with 28 CFA vehicles either on scene or en route. Police are controlling traffic and aircraft support has been requested. Nearby residents are advised to monitor conditions and warnings and plan for if the situation changes. Two fire bomber aircrafts have been dispatched in response to a bushfire in far east Gippsland. The fire, 20 kilometres west of Wulgulmerang, is not yet under control, with 12 vehicles and two aircrafts currently responding. The 100-hectare fire is burning through a remote area in the Alpine National Park, and there is no threat to property at present. Forest fire management is on scene, and CFA are supporting with the aircrafts. Police say a teenage boy has sustained life-threatening injuries during a stabbing in Wangaratta in the early hours of this morning. Wangaratta detectives say a group of unknown offenders attacked two male teenagers on White Street about 20 past two. 
both the 17-year-old Newport boy who was stabbed and an 18-year-old Wangaratta man who was assaulted have been airlifted to hospital. A rock climber has been rescued after falling 18 metres at Mount Verapolis in Western Victoria. Emergency services were called to the incident about half past nine this morning. A 25-year-old male suffered injuries to a wrist, ankle and shoulder and is being airlifted to the Royal Melbourne Hospital. For more news and stories, visit your local ABC station online. Thanks, Rochelle. Rochelle Kirkham there with news headlines. Let's go to the Bureau now. Stephanie Miles at the Bureau is on the line. Afternoon, Stephanie. Hi, Angus. How are you? Well, I'm reading the Steph, the uh, the Steph, the text line right now, and uh, I mentioned that rain coming next week, and a whole bunch of people have texted in asking for personalised forecasts. So I'll put those to you uh, shortly. But before that, uh, I just stepped outside before doing Country Hour, and it's pretty hot right now. It's a bit of a shock to the system today. Very warm around the state, uh, and you're not the only ones, really. Uh, it's pretty much high 20s over most of the state today. Very bright and sunny out there, not a cloud in the sky either, which is, um, look, if you like the sunshine, you've got, got the public holiday and you're uh, not working. It's very nice out there. Um, but, look, those conditions are really only going to continue. We've got uh, warm weather tomorrow as well. Those northwesterly winds are going to pick up as well, though. So um, just a heads up for those people in the northwestern parts of the state with that warm and windy windy weather um, to keep an eye on our fire danger ratings as well. Uh, we've got, you know, max temps around 29, 30 degrees in those northwestern parts and pretty much over the rest of the state. So a very similar day tomorrow again. And then uh, on Sunday, things start to get a little bit more cloudy. The temperatures don't drop all that much. We're still in about the mid-20s on the Sunday. Uh, we have a little trough that's moving through Tassie, which will bring a couple of cooler temperatures to our southwestern parts of the state. But look, most of the state, like I said, in about those mid-20s. Uh, and then continuing again on Monday. But really, after Monday and into the middle of next week is when we really kind of get that next system that's coming through. So like you said, we've got a lot of rainfall um, potentially on the horizon. We have a nice trough that's starting to move over us on Tuesday. Uh, there's going to be quite a band of rain that comes through on Tuesday, but what's really happening is that uh, from Tuesday overnight uh, into Wednesday morning, we start to get a bit of a strengthening of that system and it kind of works out to be a bit more of a low-pressure system just in the eastern parts of our state, which will kind of concentrate most of the, uh, I guess, um, potential stronger winds and higher rainfall in that part of the state on the Wednesday and into the Thursday. But, yeah, look, it's kind of opposites, isn't it, Angus? It's hot now and it's going to be a little bit um, of the opposite next week with the wind and the rain coming. And the warm weather we've got today and tomorrow, Stephanie, uh, it seems like the past several springs we've had uh, pretty pretty mild weather. Has it been a while since we've had uh, warm weather like this in September? Well, I mean, not, uh, well, I mean, if we think back to like pretty much last week, we all had pretty warm weather as well. But I mean, I guess in terms of the climate, it is, uh, climate, sorry, it is quite warm, quite dry. So look, it's not, you know, for people to be thinking that it's not unreasonable. Uh, I mean, our climate that summer has come out next Monday as well, so we'll be able to work out some records if there's any. Uh, but you're right, look, it's been dry and hot and, um, you know, uncomfortable for some people. Now, that rain, Stephanie, can you give me uh, as much detail as you can about what totals might be expected where? I'm going to try. Uh, we're still kind of working out the very finicky details of what's actually going to happen. I think our story at the moment is 
coming together a little bit more consistency. We don't have a lot of confidence on the amount of rainfall. Uh, in terms of where it's going to be, on Tuesday um, and into Wednesday, I think most of our rainfall is really going to be around central parts and eastern parts of the state. And then from Wednesday onwards, it kind of concentrates in that eastern parts, like we said. But, I mean, at the moment on the forecast, we've got anywhere between, you know, 20 to 40 mils for a lot of locations over the central and eastern parts of Victoria. But, uh, like... Like I said, I'm sorry. The confidence is just so low that at the moment I can't give anything better than that. And to be honest, it's probably going to flip-flop a little bit uh, until we start to get higher confidence with those amounts. But, um, I mean, for the first guess, perhaps those are pretty reasonable at the moment. It, the rainfall looks like it might be a bit of a, you know, some quite moderate rainfall coming through. And, yeah, just on that uh, difficulty in forecasting at the moment, I've got the Horsham forecast up in front of me and... With the range from the, the low to, to high probability totals, uh, Tuesday for Horsham, because that's where I'm sitting, 1 to 9 mil, so 1 to 9, and then Wednesday, 1 to 20. So that could be, could be uh, if the low probability ends up, you, you get barely a drop and high probability more than an inch on the old scale. Well, yeah, I think that's a very good example of just... The high, the, you know, the high amount of uncertainty that we have. But for everyone, I mean, everyone's going to be keen uh, to, you know, know what's happening. So just keep an eye on our forecast for the next couple of days. They will start to iron out a little bit. Perhaps even in the next few days we'll get a better idea. But, look, I can understand why everyone's looking so closely towards it, especially after such a dry September. And I did mention that I had some... Um uh, personalised forecast requests. I'm, I know you mightn't be able to oblige those requests, but I'll at least read out the texts that Buzz, who's in the northwest of the state, says the crops are looking okay at the moment, but 10 mils would make a nice, a, a massive difference. What, what chance do you reckon that Buzz might uh, record 10 mils? Oh, I guess it depends how northwest is he. <laughs> pretty, pretty well northwest, I think, Buzz is. Yeah, well, I mean... I don't think it's unreasonable at the moment. I just wouldn't, um, you know, go out and do the things that you need to do if when 10 mils is on its way because just not sure. And then as well, and I know I'm asking you to <laughs> tell me what's, what you, you can't possibly predict at this stage, but uh, a texter is in the northern country asking, yeah, because I reckon they might be saying that because often I do request a, a forecast for the northwest. I guess that's, that's a big cropping zone and it's at the drier part of the state, but... The northern country as well, Stephanie, what, what should should they expect, those areas, I suppose, sort of Bendigo, north of Bendigo? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, if anything, they're the ones that are going to get more than, especially the northwest. Uh, the way that, like, the system's oriented at the moment, I think those northern slopes uh, and, like, the northern plains will receive at least some moderate rainfall. But, yeah, I mean, at the moment we've got anywhere between 3 to 30 mils on the Bendigo forecast, so... Yeah, I'm so sorry, Angus. I feel like I'm broken record just saying I'm not sure, but I just don't want to get, um, you know, too ahead of ourselves and I don't want those forecasts to be too wildly, um, you know, too high for the people that really need it and then too low for the people who don't. So, yeah, I'm so sorry. (laughs) No, what's the expression? You're you're, um, under-promising and hopefully over-delivering. Can we go with that? That's a great way to put it. Thank you. <laughs> and there were also, um, oh, someone, who is that? They said, oh, that Northern, Northern Country texturer says, thank you for that. So there's some appreciation for your work. And uh, as well, there were a couple of others. Rods, who's south of Ararat, was looking for a forecast. And then people in the southwest. So hopefully, um, yeah, some rain coming through in that southwest through to Ararat zone as well. 
Oh, I appreciate uh, the text line. Thank you. And look, I'm going to be here next week, so I'm looking forward to speaking to you uh, all then and having a better idea. Uh, hopefully we can give some more reasonable and consistent totals to them uh, at the beginning of next week. Just one more before I let you off the hook because John in the Eastern Riverina has asked about rain. We, we haven't talked about New South Wales. Is is this rain band pushing through New South Wales too? Yeah, it looks like it is. It looks like more... Um, I mean, I'm not familiar with the districts, so I'm sorry if I call them the wrong things, but uh, I guess if you just extend the Great Dividing Range northwards into northwest sorry, New South Wales, that's really going to be the area where it looks like most of the rainfall is kind of um, focused. And then right on that border of Vic and New South Wales, that little section in there too, if that's where you're talking about, uh, looks like at the moment where that rainfall for New South Wales will be focused. Okay, well, I'll let you go, Stephanie, but have a good weekend and uh, we'll chat next week. No, I appreciate it, Angus. I hope everyone has a great day and yeah, we'll speak to you next week. Thanks so much. Stephanie Miles there, Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau. And Rusty as well says the forecast for Western Victoria has dropped a lot, but the ants are still confident. Yeah, I did see quite a, actually quite a few people on social media saying the ants have been busy, uh, usually uh, a, sign, a sign that rain might be on the way. You can text in 0467 842 722. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. And with this fine weather that we've had in recent times, I'm sure plenty of people have been out on their sprayers. Well, more farmers are purchasing technology that gives them the ability to spot spray green weeds out of green crops. It's an evolution from green on brown spraying, spraying weeds in fallows, which has been around for decades. David Tuppen is product manager with Gold Acres, which is one of several sprayer manufacturers fitting Bilberry green on green tech to their machines. I caught up with him at the Birchip Cropping Day Cropping Group Field Day recently and had a chat about the evolution of the technology. So we've been working on this for about four years now and it in the early days it was more the green on brown side of it and there was the development of the green on green was was slow and um, we've seen a massive uptake in the last probably two years and, and the development has certainly sped up a lot in the last two years as well to, to match that to a point where we're now seeing commercial algorithms being developed in in cereals and canolas and and vetch and lentils and those types of crops are really focusing on that broad acre type cropping. And just in layman's terms, green on green, spraying green weeds out of a green crop, how does that actually work on the the tech side of things? So the system's actually scanning the whole field as it's going along and it and it's looking for weeds as well as identifying the crop so the algorithms are developed per crop type so we'll have a for argument's sake uh, broad leaves weeds in cereals so cereals being wheat barley and oats so that's your crop type and then the broad leaves takes in all of your your bigger leaf type weeds like volunteer canolas radish mustard cape weeds those bigger leaf type weeds and then they'll break another one up for whether it be grasses in canola so it'll be canola be looking for the canola as well as looking for all those grass type weeds and is the advantage that you're you'd clearly be using less chemical or are you able to use chemicals that could could damage the crop because you're only using them on that spot spraying basis yeah, so it really works both ways. You can 
you, you will use less chemical, there's no doubt about that. Um, on average, with the machines we've got out there, we're seeing a, a 70 to 80% reduction in chemical use, but that also then allows you to use different types of chemicals or higher rates of chemicals. In your presentation, you spoke about developing a system where you'd have a machine that could perhaps be spot spraying weeds at the same time as putting out a, a blanket fungicide spray, for example. Yeah, so part of my job is looking at the future of what we're going to do from Gold Oaks' perspective and attending days like this with the Birchip Cropping Group gives us a lot of useful information from the people who matter being the, the people using our machines. And one thing that we've got fed back a lot was that they'd like to be able to apply a full blanket spray chemical, whether it be a pesticide or a fungicide, at the same time as, as spot spraying. So... What we're looking at developing is a second tank, a smaller tank that has just got the hot mixed chemical in there for spot spraying and then the main tank will be filled up with that blanket spray type chemical. So yeah, that's, that's going to be an exciting project to take on. In terms of limitations of the technology, you had a pretty simple line that if, if you can't see the weed physically, then clearly the camera's not going to be able to see it. Yeah, that's right. It's it's as simple as that. It's it's a camera. It just works on vision, and and if you cannot see the weed, it will not see it. That's the best way to to make an assessment of your crop, whether you do spot spray or you do end up blanket spraying. Uh, some other questions you got things about what time of the day can you and and can't you use it, and uh, what sorts of uh, working speeds you can travel at. Yep. So in a a green on brown situation. Um, Pretty much you can spray day or night. Green on green is really a daytime only because the algorithm hasn't been developed to work at night with the LED lights and a lot of that just comes from the reflection of the the light coming back off of the green crop. A restriction we've got at the moment, um, whether it be green on green, green on brown, is early in the morning or late at night or late in the afternoon when the sun is close to the horizon no different to you and I driving down the highway with the sun glaring in our eyes it's very difficult to see and the, and the camera struggles to see in those sort of conditions so you might have to give it an hour either side. You said that the tech's improving all the time and, and the big one the big uh, frontier for you I suppose is at some stage maybe being able to spray ryegrass out of cereals? Yeah so that's a really exciting one getting ryegrass out of cereals um, it's, it's taken taken a long time to get to this point but they are, we are testing some algorithms this year um, it's very late in the growth stage of the crop because the ryegrass needs to be above the wheat to or the, the cereal that it's being sprayed in to be detected um, so hopefully that all, all goes to plan this year and then we'll get some more testing out on some bigger farms um, later on next year so it's really just a matter of time I think before we've got that one if you do decide to go down this path, you buy the machine, but then you also pay an ongoing uh, subscription fee, similar to people with uh, auto steer subscriptions? Yeah, that's right. So there's a few ways you can purchase the algorithms. The With Green on Green, it it's usually works out at, at $8 per hectare, um, and Green on Brown is $2.50 per hectare, but you only pay for that once in that year. So if you've got a 1,000 hectares... With green on green, you'll pay eight thousand dollars, and then you can cover that same thousand hectares as many times as you like throughout that year. It's not every time you go over it during that year; it's just once a year. 
So, David, where to from here? You talked about working on uh, ryegrass control, for example, but um, how much potential improvement do you think there is? So, it's really, the algorithm development is up to the people from Bilbury to work on that. From Gold Oaks' perspective, we're um, also heavily looking into the autonomous market with this. Um, we've already got two machines out there, one in New South Wales and one in WA, working with uh, Swarm Farm, with the Swarm Bots, doing autonomous spraying. That's really exciting stuff. And that sounds like a natural fit when you've got a sprayer that's operating itself. You, you may as well have, have the driving side of it being done autonomously as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's um, because it, it, it just sits out there and does its thing. And you know, the more times you can go over it with the camera system, the, the less weeds you're going to have. And there's no better way to do that than autonomously because you don't get your value out of those unless they're out in the paddock working. So you just let it go and they just sit out there and do their thing. That was David Tuppen, product manager with Gold Acres. And one of our texters does have a sense of humour. They say, warning, operation of colour sensor spray unit. Do not wear wrong coloured green hat when checking spray boom. Thanks for that text. Uh, some texts as well on the price of meat. Chris says, Angus yesterday at a wholesale butcher in Ballarat, barbecue chops were $22. Still cheaper than the supermarkets, but even allowing for slaughter costs, a long way above the prices they are paying for carcass weight prices in the sale yards. Although, Chris, there are, of course, some some middlemen in that supply chain. Stu in Mysia with a very different sentiment. He says there are some wonderful, hard-working butchers that keep their margins low, that kept their margins low when sheep prices were high. So what's wrong with them making a few bucks now? We need these businesses in our towns. And I personally, I, I am often surprised at the moment walking into the local butcher shop, uh, seeing some of the uh, discounted deals that, that are in the fridge. Uh, 0467842722 is the text line. That's how Dave at Lake Tyres has got in touch. He says, Angus, with the looming hot, dry summer, is it wise to export hay to China rather than store it for our own needs? Maybe not, Dave, but I guess at, at the end of the day in the free market, that's, uh, that's an individual business decision that gets made. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. A new Ladies in Livestock group has started up in the northeast of the state, giving novice, novice farmers a chance to learn hands-on skills. The course is targeting women with little to no farming experience and covers everything from marking calves and fixing fences to soil testing and even how to buy and sell at the sale yards. Rural reporter Annie Brown went along for lesson one, landmarking. Just watch so they don't kick them good little kickers. On a farm in Warrambane, just outside of Benalla, a group of nine women are marking lambs for the first time. It's part of a new group in the northeast of Victoria called Ladies in Livestock, and it's run by cattle farmer Jackie Lachlan. Used to be a farm consultant, and I now have stud Murray Gray cattle which I love. <laughs> and for a long time, 10 years ago, I had this idea of, in talking to younger girls, they wanted the practical skills. If they bought land, they could actually feel confident in going and buying sheep, 
handling lambs or calves, fixing a fence. And it's taken a long time to come to fruition. But then I thought, well, bite the bullet and do it. And the idea was for women to come out in an environment that wasn't under pressure, um, which sometimes it is with men. They get, they're in a hurry to do things and, and often they lose their cool with their wives and their girlfriends. <laughs> so this was to provide an environment where they could relax and learn. You said this is something that you've wanted to do for a long time. Mm. Where did you first get the idea from this? Like, what was this inspired from? Just talking at conferences with young girls and older girls. One of the older ladies, she wanted to keep her farm. And because she'd been the housewife, the housekeeper, the children's you know, raiser, she didn't know how the farm worked. And she, her husband died and the children talked her into selling the farm because she didn't know about it. And she said, I wish I'd met you years ago because I would have then learned how to run the farm, I could stay there. And she wanted to stay there, but in the end sold it. So that sort of helped me think along those lines as well. There's women here, that single women and married women. So it covers anyone and everyone. (laughs) How did you get into farming, Jackie? Family dairy farm. When I was young and I loved it, I spent every weekend down on the farm. I worked for years and years and years with other vocations and at 40 I went back to farming and I thought I should have done this when I was 20 (laughs) and I can't get enough of it. I guess what are your hopes for what this group could grow into? Well I do hope at the end of it they're all confident enough to go and purchase animals and run their property whether it's 400 acres or four acres and be confident in doing it and feel that they're doing it the right way. Cheryl and her husband retired to Ruffy to take up farming. They've started with just a small herd of belted Galloway. This is the first time she's ever been near a sheep. My husband is very much a perfectionist and no farming background, so I found I was really relying on his expertise. Although I was doing lots of reading, I wasn't hands-on. And we're in our 60s and I want to be able to really participate equally in the farm. And this was just a beautiful opportunity to learn with other women in a safe environment to get my confidence up and just just live the life I want to live as an active person on the land as I get older. So you said you're new to farming. What were you doing before? So I was a nurse, midwife before, before this, so um, maternal and child health nurse. No family history of farming whatsoever, but lots of bushwalking and camping and time in the country. Had this very idyllic view of how life would be. Reality is a nice place to visit, but I'm now living in it. So, What's been the highlight of your day? Actually, practically doing this, I've never handled a sheep before, and we've laughed a lot. So, you know, we've all fumbled our way through. As you saw, I couldn't tell a girl from a <laughs> boy, so I've got that covered now. So, no, just really doing it and learning. Yeah, it's been great. That was Cheryl Kearney, who farms in Ruffy, speaking with rural reporter Annie Brown. Five minutes to one, you're listening to The Country Hour. And no agricultural show could be complete without a visit to the Country Women's Association stand for a scone or some sandwiches, maybe both. This year marks 175 years of the state's biggest show, the Royal Melbourne. The Country Hour's executive producer, Emma Field, headed along and popped into the cafeteria to find out what's for lunch. 
Hello, I'm Heather Scott. I'm from Leon Gather in South Gippsland. I belong to Minion Branch of the CWA. Heather, we're in the um, CWA. Well, what do you call this pavilion here? The cafeteria. What's on offer? CWA, what's cafeteria. on offer today? Um, well, of course, our famous scones with jam and cream. We sell around about two thousand a day. Ooh, who's, who bakes all them? You have to be um, accredited to be the scone cook. I'll bet you do. <laughs> yes, so our head scone cook, Joy, has been doing it for the last 16 years. Um, her assistants have less experience, but considerable. Um, and we train up new cooks each year if we can. And then we have chefs who make the lunch meals, the dinner meals, the breakfast meals. We have people preparing salads and sandwiches. We have people who are trained to operate the cash registers. We have the people who work selling the merchandise and the show bags. And we have, of course, all the very essential people who do all the cleaning up and the washing of the dishes and the stocking of new cutlery and so on. And most of them are volunteers, CWA members? Every person working here is a volunteer. Some of them take time off from their paid jobs in order to work here for nothing. Of course they do. Um, now, does it raise money for the CWA, this particular venture at the show? Yes, this is our main fundraising event of the year. We couldn't function without this event because this is one of the things that enables us to do hundreds of thousands of dollars of work in support of women and children and families. And what makes you want to come to the show? Or... Well, it's good fun for a start. I love seeing all my friends from around the state, whom I'm, some of them I only see at this time of year, depending where they're from, or um, other people that I've worked with over the years. I've been coming to volunteer at the show. And uh, I enjoy talking to the public and telling them about what we do. And I guess I get a, a lot of satisfaction about seeing people happy to be fed wholesome food. That's right, good nutritious meals. Now, what is it that attracts you to the CWA? The first thing, I suppose, is that I was born into it. My mother was a CWA member. <laughs> so I've, I've been going since I was a baby. But um, I enjoy it because of the friendships that we make and the work that we do in support of people who are more disadvantaged or who need um, support, who need friendship, who perhaps might be lonely and need somebody to build up their confidence and their skills. All right, well, I'll let you go so you can serve all these hungry customers and make sure they have a good, a good meal for the day. Thank you very much. That was Heather Scott, a member of the Country Women's Association from Lee and Gather, speaking with Emma Field. And not sure about you, but that makes me hungry. And I'm going to get out of here soon and have some lunch. But quickly before I go, head a monkey on the text line saying, Angus, could you imagine what would happen if an industry in Victoria had a drop of 50% and the cause was not environmental, referring to the land market? A stink would be kicked up. Yet what are we hearing from the VFF, NFF or Nationals? Crickets. Maybe that's what we need to farm, says that texter. Remember the website because there's quite a few good rural stories up there. One about the looming live export ban. There's also one about China, except lifting its ban on Australian hay. abc.net.au forward slash rural is the website. Have a great weekend. News time now, one o'clock.